there's a difference between what like the best way objectively to do something is and the way you'll be best at doing something. Right? And, and I think people like conflate those things too often. Let's say objectively, right? Like a great way to build a medical tool is to, you know, just do the research, chase this insurer route, get approved, you know, and go through all of that. Say that's what it is. And I have caveats on that. Like say that's the gold standard, right? It doesn't actually matter what the gold standard is if like that's not what you're going to be good at building, right? Like the question for me was like, am I going to be better than all the other people that are building here at like navigating insurer landscapes or like doing, you know, large scale academic research, any of those things? Like I'm not, like I'm not going to be better than people who've done that for like 20, 30 years and are building products in that space. What I, what I could be better at, right, is like, can we build a better consumer experience? Can we build something people actually want to use? Nikhil Patel is founder and CEO of Craniometrics, where they're using innovative deep learning and digital health tools to diagnose Alzheimer's disease and position themselves as the all-in-one Alzheimer's care platform. Nikhil studied computer science and economics at Yale University before launching Craniometrics, which was accepted into Y Combinator and have raised $6 million in their seed round. We talk about how Nikhil's been able to build Craniometrics as a 22-year-old and get investors really excited about his vision how a digital tool can unlock new levels of diagnostic ability, and why Nikhil talks so fast. I hope you enjoy. So Nikhil, would you mind telling me a little bit about your story, particularly any pivotal moments along the way, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, so I've been uh, in and, and around this, uh, you know, kind of Alzheimer's early detection research type space for a while. Um, I think the first project I did in the space was back in, in grade seven. Um, so I'm 22 now, so it's, it's what, like 10 years ago. So when I was a kid, my grandma had Alzheimer's and, and she was living out in, in rural India at the time. So, you know, slowly over the phone, she started repeating herself and, and those type of things. And so we brought her over to the States to try and, you know, seek treatment or, you know, see some doctors and stuff. Once all of that started to happen. And uh, one of the main, you know, roadblockers that, that everyone kind of cited for her was just that the condition was diagnosed super late. So, you know, wanted to take a stab at solving that problem. Um, obviously, as, as a kid, nothing really fortuitous came for a while. Um, spent a couple of years kind of tackling that myself. Uh, and then, you know, spent a couple of years doing research at, at a local university through high school, um, trying to really, you know, understand, well, if I could look at my grandma and, you know, tell that she has Alzheimer's disease or she has some form of dementia, she, maybe we could train a computer to do that identification much earlier. Um, so, you know, spent a few years in that space and, and had some, some interesting results and interesting publications come out of it. Uh, and then went to college, uh, went to Yale, studied computer science and economics, um, and had this shift where, you know, uh, I, I, I saw some, some of those shiny things like uh, the jobs in finance and, and all of those things that, that people get jumped into and, um, and, and ended up jumping over uh, to, to go work in that space. What I found was that the, the machine learning type skills that I developed uh, while building some of these predictive algorithms for Alzheimer's and, and all of that. Um, were super lucrative to, to you know some of these hedge fund bank type folks, and and they were willing to pay me a lot of money to uh, to work on those problems for them. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, uh, and and it was exciting and it was it was fun, but always kind of felt um, you know felt felt like something was missing. wasn't you know super excited by the work and and coming in every day. And so when I was coming up to graduate uh, college, I started doing some thinking about whether you know I really wanted to kind of take this this corporate job and, and go that way, or or maybe if there was something that I could do that would be more fulfilling and and maybe more impactful on the people around me. Um, so at that point kind of circled back to, to some of this research that I'd done back in the day and, and started looking, looking into, you know, what was the state of the art today around Alzheimer's detection, those type of things. Um, and was, you know, pretty shocked to find out no one had actually effectively commercialized the tool. Um, and so decided, you know, why not take a stab at solving that problem? So, you know, I've been working on 
building craniometrics and building this kind of commercial um, set of Alzheimer's diagnostics and, and, and treatment tools uh, for about a year now. In terms of zooming in on the story a little bit, can you tell me about the process of uh, building craniometrics and, and getting into YC? Yeah, absolutely. So back in the day, you know, I'd done some pretty primitive research, basically saying, well, if we could take, you know, you have people that, that do get diagnosed early with Alzheimer's or other dementias. It doesn't happen too often, but they do, if, you know, you can get you get a PET scan, you get an MRI, you can get one of these very deep invasive procedures, you can get an early diagnosis, obviously super expensive. So, you know, it doesn't work for most people. Um, so, you know, what I'd done back in the day was we'd taken folks that had gone through those procedures, um, you know, obviously taking folks that, that didn't have an early diagnosis and, and basically try to understand, well, at, at face value, uh, at surface level, you can't really, um, you know, you can't really tell who has impairment, but like maybe if we put them through a series of these computerized tests that we can really measure kind of fine cognitive processing skills, we could find something interesting. So back then, um, in terms of predictives, uh, we were basically choosing kind of simple patient statistics and, and those type of things. Um, so the first thing I did when I decided that to start, you know, creating metrics and, and start this kind of corporate uh, kind of commercial opportunity here was to just go back and, and take some of the data we've collected and, and build better models. And, you know, take a lot of the, the kind of machine learning and, and deeper predictive type skills that I picked up over the past few years and, and really say, well, can we build more accurate predictions off the pool of data we already had. So that was the first step. And, and we found that we can, and, and you know, it's possible to kind of, you know, approach accuracy rates of 90, 95% um, in comparison to, you know, what, what doctors are getting today off pen and paper tests, roughly 30% or so. Um, so that was the first proof point. It was basically like, well, we can do this. And, and there, you know, there's this interesting opportunity here. So the next step was to think about, well, like, you know, what does that actually look like from a business perspective, from a startup perspective? Like, how do you build this into a product or a service that people want, right? And, and, and to that question, like, what should that look like, right? You could go the route of, of you know, maybe there should be a tool that, that sits inside of a doctor's office, or maybe there should be a tool um, that, you know, you do at your annual physical, those type of things. And, and so what we found in, in looking into the space was just that all of those bases were covered. I think there are a lot of other players that have, have been spending a lot of time on, on the side of like, how do you build really accurate diagnostics then? bundle them into a physician's existing workflow. Um, what we found was lacking was this idea of like, how do you, um, how do you actually get people to use these things, right? Like uh, the average utilization for tools that are supposed to be used in, in, in the annual checkup is, is less than 30%. Like these things aren't getting used. Doctors are overworked and don't have time to give people an extra 10 minute screen. So how do you build these in a way that people would actually take them? And, and we found, uh, you know, building a direct to consumer opportunity being the, the right way to go about that. Um, and we've done that, and I was like, hey, well, this is a good idea that we could actually build a business on top of. Um, and, and so I was at this point, uh, you know, harking back to, to what I was saying earlier, where I was kind of trying to decide um, whether this was a, a viable you know, career opportunity to jump into um, or whether I should, you know, go the, the route that I had planned out and, and, and take a, a job offer. And um, so I spent a lot of time, I spent a couple of months, um, you know, pitching the idea, refining the idea and, and trying to raise money. Um, nothing worked for a, a few months. You know, we, we, we got a couple of offers here and there, but, but nothing super lucrative or super attractive. Um, and so by the time, you know, July came around, uh, and, and that, you know, job offer supposed to start, end up just kind of, kind of saying, screw it and, and, and jumping all in anyway. Um, which I would say to, to your point earlier about pivotal moments, uh, probably the biggest job I've, I've ever made, you know, in my life, uh, ended up paying off, you know, we ended up, uh, getting into, to Y Combinator that October. I think what, uh, what, you know, folks really liked about our approach was just that idea of, you know, how do you actually get people to use tools like this? And like, why don't, you know, other platforms uh, exist in, in this kind of D2C space? And, and, you know, 
it, it seems like an opportunity that, that allowed us not only build really successful diagnostics, but also to branch into a lot of other avenues of Alzheimer's care. So we did that, ended up raising a, uh, a pre-seed round uh, around, you know, that, that's why Combinator acceptance time as well. Um, and, uh, you know, went through YC this this spring, winter, actually, you know, January through March and, and just closed the seed a couple months ago. Uh, Nikhil, you're going to have to forgive me because I'm going to sound like a granddad throughout this. But the thing I don't understand is, so you go for this D to C approach where you're like, okay, doctors are doing this pen and paper tests. Why don't we make something that people can use probably in the comfort of their own homes whenever they want? Um, I'm on a older adults geriatrics ward at the moment. And I look around, everyone has like a dumb phone, you know, one of those flip phones. Um, they don't know how to use touch screens mostly. Um, so I just don't understand how, you know, you going for this approach makes any sense for that population like how like how did that how did you square that totally yeah um and, and so you know it comes down to, to a couple of things one is that we're really looking at at wanting to be the earliest first check for these conditions and we look at the age group for that right we're really not looking to test people above you know above 70 years old right like the target for like an early screen is really can you get people and can you test them anywhere from like 45 to like you know early 60s right let's just kind of like very very early step um and, and, and that's an age cohort, right, that, like, does have smartphones, like, does, you know, use a lot of these services. And um, what you find, right, is that, like, that's where you can have the most impact. Because if you're if you're 75, right, and you don't have a cell phone, whatever, we can talk about that problem. Like, if you're 75 and, like, you don't already show symptoms of, of cognitive impairment, right, then even if you have early stage cognitive impairment in your brain, like it, the, the impact of that's going to be very, very small, right? Because like these, these things take a very long time to play out. You're looking at wanting to catch these, you know, anywhere from like 15 to 25 years before you actually see visible changes. Um, so that early stage is, is just where, you know, where, where we look to, to meet people, um, which is why, you know, you, you can do this feasibly, right? Because like, if you're looking at that 45 to kind of 65 group, um, you know, my parents are 60 and, and are well versed on, on their phones. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's what we, what we try to try to get at. Um, it's an interesting question though. I mean, we, we did some work with, uh, you know, digitizing pens and, and those type of things and make it easier for some people to do these things. If you look at, look at an older cohort, what we ended up settling on though, was that one, we focus on this younger cohort. Most of these people already, you know, are well versed with technology, but two, it's kind of the, right. Like we're building a product that, that we want people to use for the next, you know, 40, 50, 100 years. Right? Like we want this to be a, a frontline detection that people continue to use in perpetuity. Um, and so maybe, right, you have this 10-year lag where people at the very high end, you're like 65-year-olds, today aren't well-versed and, and aren't going to take this test even though they should. Um, but, you know, five years from now, that's no longer a problem, right? But so it sounds like you're building something that people will uh, enjoy using a bit more or will use for the next 10, 20 years. Like wh what is it that actually your test entails that means that people will want to use it? Can you kind of fill me in on that? Yeah, totally. So, and the testing suite is is pretty simple. So, like one of uh, one of my favorite examples of one of the tests we offer is is digitized version of, of what's called the clock drawing test. That, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, but you know, for, for everyone else, it's just that uh, basically, you know, this idea where you draw a clock on on a piece of paper, and then a doctor looks at it and it's going to say, "Hey, well, um, did." Nikhil draw all of the numbers or, or the hands pointing to the right numbers, et cetera. Basically, you know, come to some conclusion about whether I have cognitive impairment or not. As it turns out, it's really, really difficult to do that accurately at an early stage. You know, accuracy rates of catching any type of cognitive impairment based off clock drawing test before visible symptoms appeared is, is sub 30%, which makes sense. Like if you couldn't notice in a conversation with me, right, how are you going to notice, um, you know, 
based on, on this clock. So what we do is on, on both the clock drawing test and on all of the other assessments we built is, is we focus not on what the final product was, but rather like what can we learn from the way you completed a task, right? So what can we learn um, from like, if you did draw all of the numbers, right? What can we learn from what's different about how you drew that 12, three, six, and nine versus the other numbers you added later? Like what can we learn from, um, you know, how many times you picked up your pen while drawing? Those type of features end up being really predictive. So we build now, right, is, is and, and what we're building towards, right, is this idea that people take these tests on a recurrent basis. They take these, you know, on, on a quarterly or biannual basis. So then we can really start to understand how you change. Because what, what's most impactful here, right, it's, it's helpful to say, well, hey, you know, how do you compare to your demographic group? when you take this test once, but it's, it's more impactful to say, like, how are you changing? And how is that rate of change different from the rate to change of, of other people? So we start with that. We start with this kind of ongoing diagnostic. Um, and then, you know, our goal is, is to lever that into how do we actually provide care along this continuum as well. That's incredible. So instead of us having that kind of finite, that just end picture of the clock someone's drawn, we can actually get the information on how they did it and track that over time. And it also kind of reminds me of, you know, in Capture, when you have to click, you know, where the buses are. And it's not actually looking at your answer, right? It's looking at how did you get to that answer? Because a robot will zip straight to it, but a human acts very differently. It's kind of similar, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think that idea, right, is starting to permeate a lot of different aspects of of medicine. I mean, even for us, we've done that. We've done testing with, you know, how do we use our tools to, to catch conditions like PTSD as well. And, and we've done research like, well, how can you use this as a tool on football fields, right, to identify when someone is safe to go back out or, or when they're, you know, at risk for a concussion. And so there, there are a lot of really interesting ways to, to, to do this next level kind of abstraction of how do we understand how people use technology. And, and I think, you know, we're building these these products that are, are specifically targeted towards that i think what's really interesting um is like how do you turn these into passive listening devices down the line right like if we can we can do predictive based on how you're typing into a word processor so like realistically um you know we can also do predictions based on how you're typing text messages or, or those sorts of things and uh you know it opens up a whole host of ethical complications at that point um but uh, but but it's an interesting idea there's no real limit to what you can do with passive right because i mean the studies into how your voice changes when you have covid or in Parkinson's, you know, the tone of your voice might change as well. So, I mean, it wouldn't just be mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. There's, there's so many things you could do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something we were toying with early on. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are a host of reasons why we're focusing on, uh, you know, on, on Alzheimer's disease. One of the biggest ones being, um, you know, just kind of my, my personal connection to it and, and, you know, prevalence of the condition in the family. But early on, we, we did some experimentation. Like, what if we just applied the same idea of, of what we built and some of these same predictives? Like, if I took a video, you know, five-second video of myself in the mirror saying something every day, um, becomes really interesting. You can predict colds, you know, a couple of days before they happen. You can do all sorts of things. Um that, uh, you know, we, we should be doing a lot more of. The thing you've described so far is kind of an active test where you log onto your thing and you draw a clock. And then what you've kind of been hinting at that passive things are also interesting, things that are passively collected because you don't need that um, active participation every day to get the data, right? So what interesting ways are there of passively detecting stuff? Is it like monitoring the keyboard, monitoring your voice? Are there any other kind of good biomarkers? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. I think one, it's it's a tough question to answer just because, like, you know, it's it it's going to be companies like Apple, et cetera, are well positioned to to really understand, you know, how do you passive listen and what are the best ways to do it. Um, based on you know what we've done, yeah, it, it's things like you know, it's things like your keyboard on on the phone. It's really interesting just to understand, like, if someone's just playing a game, right? You know, you can you can pick up a lot of the same signals as we do off the clock from from gameplay, right? Like, how quickly you're responding to, to new stimuli, how are you? 
you know, moving the block, et cetera. Um, so, you know, for us, I, I think what we started with, right, is, is this almost, and it's, you know, we, we call it kind of gamification and in the way we've, you know, built these clocks, those type of things. It's not really a game. No one's doing it for fun, right? But like, I, I think we started with, with this idea of like, the best thing to do is to take the existing medical standard and kind of build, um, build, build the same thing that works a lot better, right? And, and start to, you know, build that, build adoption direct to consumer capacity and get people to understand like why these things work. Um, and, and I think that gives you this foothold that allows us to slowly pivot to passive listening over time, right? Because like if we can make it more fun for people to do these things, right? And we're never, we're, we're probably never going to get to the point where like this is entirely passive. You just kind of install it on, on your phone and, and let it run in the background. But we get to the point where, you know, you can, uh, you could put this behind like your Wordle, right? Or, or behind your New York Times crossword or those type of things. Um, that's super feasible to do um, and, and easy to set up. And I think we get a lot of rich information from it. So hopefully, you know, as we continue to build, we can shift consumers from these more active you know, um, clock drawing type of things towards more passive, just like plug this behind a game and, uh, you know, you can do what you're going to do anyway, and we can learn something useful about your kind of cognitive capacity from it. The other thing I don't get, though, is that you mentioned that this is mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. It's more useful to be able to detect it or screen it between 45 to 60 or slightly younger age. And I'm happy to be corrected on this, but my understanding was that a lot of the pharmacology and a lot of the interventions used in these kinds of things, um, they don't really reverse the disease. They might improve quality of life, but you know, with a good screening program, you need like an intervention that's actually going to have a, a decent effect. So, I mean, do those things exist? Like, is there evidence that if you crack on early, that you're actually going to make a demonstrable difference in someone's life? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. I think we're, we're in kind of the, the early stages of, you know, treating conditions like this. Um, you know, for a long time, things as simple as kind of the, the lifestyle management change, those type of things, whether it's diet, exercise, um, have been shown to have, you know, some positive effects on, on slowing the progression of the condition. To your point, right, we're, we're never, for, for a long time, at least, you know, maybe the next 50 years, whatever, we're not going to be able to reverse these conditions. We're not going to be able to, you know, reverse damage to the brain. Um, what we can kind of do now is, is slow the rate of, of damage. So for us, one of the main reasons for catching this early is like, well, today, right, as you start to go through these conditions, you, you have your, your fall risk person, you have your, you know, your primary care person, you have, you have all these different folks um, that are, are all helping kind of different parts of the journey or different services that are helping different parts of the journey. Um, and, and so for us, it's like, well, that's a super painful process for people to go through. Like, why not kind of centralize all the services and build a one-stop shop kind of care ecosystem around the condition? So for us, it's like, well, if you can catch this early, you're inevitably going to need a lot of services, whether those are prevention or treatment services. Um, and we can we can kind of optimize how those are delivered both for you and for, you know, your, your family caregivers and, and all of those folks. There's an interesting collaboration or financial model where you could hook up with pharma and they're like okay we've got this new drug or current drug that's helpful in, in slowing down alzheimer's and we're going to partner with you you spot people who have this and we advertise our drug to them or maybe we enroll them in this clinical trial have you thought of those kind of collaborations <laughs> it's an it's a good question so we actually uh you know we've had we've had multiple pharma companies reach out on that front and, and i think you know what's interesting for us from that space is like how do you do that you know in the in a way that's this most altruistic right from a pharma company perspective incentive alignment is basically like well can we identify who's at risk and triage them to that pharma company right so that they maintain kind of price discrimination all of those things um from our perspective right that's not as attractive like our goal here is you're like how do we how do we kind of democratize this experience like, like one thing that's super interesting for us from a, a pharma perspective right is if we can become this this first 
you know, first lever um, and then this first kind of kind of sieve that, that's catching folks. Um, well, then as multiple companies start to come out with these drugs, right, we start to get the ability to to, to build kind of a competitive marketplace, right? We have some say in, in how these things are priced and, and, you know, have the ability to triage people towards the right drug instead of just, you know, whichever one they can find. And, and, and so, um, you know, which we try to be very cautious of that when, when working with pharma companies. But, uh, but yeah, to, to you know, keep it short, we, we've, we've had a lot of interest there and um, have, have some traction with some of those folks. And, and we're kind of going through the early stages of, uh, you know, doing some kind of partnership trials on, on that front. If everything goes right for you over the next 10 years, like where do you see yourself and craniometrics being? Like what's the what's the 10x goal or the, or the big fat vision? Like where would you be? Yeah, to what I was mentioning earlier on, on kind of the point of like, you know, what do you do if you can't necessarily, you know, treat these things or cure these things? Um, and, and that's becoming that one-stop shop care platform for, for Alzheimer's and, and other dementias, right? Like becoming the place people go um when you know a, a caregiver has a question right or or when you know a, a patient needs to take these recurrent cognitive assessments or, or wants to engage with digital therapeutics which is another thing we're seeing a lot of really interesting traction on uh you know across kind of the research landscape is, is digital therapeutics for treating these conditions and, and so we want to be that one-stop shop for all of that in addition to right whether it's it's provision of pharmaceuticals or, or kind of, you know, synchronous consultations and, and all of that, and really, you know, do all of that symptom management pathway planning. So what is interesting for us, you know, as we think about the market as a whole, right, it's like, it's going to change a lot. Like for, for every piece of the Alzheimer's journey from diagnosis to, to, you know, prevention to treatment, all of it, it's all going to change a ton over the, over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Like what we want to do is, is really just position as kind of that central consumer window into the space, right? So position is kind of like like the provider of care directly to, to consumers and individuals. Um, and, and in that way, you know, I think we have this opportunity to kind of evolve with whatever direction the industry goes, right? Like if we see a, you know, a, a groundbreaking drug come out in six months, you know, a lot of platform comes, how do we just funnel consumers towards that drug? And if we see a groundbreaking digital therapeutic come out, it, it becomes that instead, right? So, and I think that's where, where I see ourselves in, in 10 years. We want to be the place when someone starts to develop Alzheimer's or has a concern about dementia, um, we want to be the first place they come uh, and, and we want to be the only place they have to go um, through the entire life cycle of, of, of that disease. Look, so Nikhil, you've got Indian origins, I've got Pakistani origins. And one thing I've picked up, you know, growing up in the UK is that a disease uh, like Alzheimer's, which is so complicated and affects kind of every facet of someone's life and family life and social life, I'm going to generalize, but in the West, there isn't really that solid kind of support network and maybe that kind of looking after of older adults and in, you know, in some facets, it's not really there. And I just wanted to ask, you know, you're building this total platform that will hopefully address many, many of the needs uh, these people will have. But for at some point, do you just see that there's like almost too big of a problem to solve? Like there's certain things you can offer, right? You can offer certain interventions, but like, how can you offer someone like a supportive social network and speaking to someone who loves them every day? Like, you know, there's certain things that just seem too difficult for you to address yeah um you know it, it's a, it's a really good question it's a, it's a question of you know I'm, I'm deeply passionate about outside of the lens of, of alzheimer's as well look like i think there are a couple of things that one of the things that's you know crazy that i hear a lot from you know when we're talking to people who you know maybe have a parent going through alzheimer's or one of those things is like one of the reasons that you know it's they, they don't pick up on it um for a while is because like the, the person who has the condition usually knows um you know that they're in early stages of what's happening they're starting to forget things and not remember as long something that's emblematic of the condition across the board is like 
parents start shortening phone calls, um, you know, and, and instead of talking to you for 10 minutes, talk to you for like eight minutes or seven minutes or five, you know, and it just goes shorter and shorter because they know that if they, if they keep the, you know, if they keep on the phone too long, they'll start repeating themselves. And, and like, they don't want their kids to, to know that they don't want to look weaker or whatever it is. Like everyone, everyone does it. Um, and it happens in, in, a, in a crazy amount of cases. You know, I would say close to 30 to 40% of, of cases we talk to, like, like people, you know, looking back and in hindsight report that as, as something that happened. Right. And, and, and that happens, you know, I think when, that's the only point of interaction you have with, with, you know, an, an elder family member. I think if you look at, you know, multi-generation households, whether it's, you know, in, in, in and across Asia or, or even kind of countries in, in Scandinavia, you know, Norway is, is, you know, I'd say doing a much better job than, than much of the West at doing multi-generational type stuff. Because you look at um, places like that um, where you have these much more frequent touch points with people, I think you get this, you have this ability to, you know, catch conditions like this earlier anyway, right? Because like you just, you know, you're, you're around those folks. And in one way, you know, that's what we can try to replace. It's like, well, we can try to even get earlier than you could catch it, you know, talking to a parent or, or a relative every day. Well, then you can solve that problem digitally. But I think the other thing that happens, right, is that like, it's, it's hard to say, right? But like, to that point of, of, of kind of what do you do, right? It's, people talk about those those mental exercises they're just kind of keeping yourself stimulated as a way to slow the progression of 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 certain you know not not of alzheimer's as a whole right but of, of certain symptoms of the condition um importantly you know some of the most prevalent symptoms whether they be kind of short-term memory loss or those type of things can be strongly you know affected by by those those you know engagement and, and those type of things um and i think we un- unfortunately right kind of built a society where where older people are, are relatively siloed right you know you have people that are in their homes alone for for essentially 24 hours a day, maybe go out once or twice a week. Um, and, and so I think that's something you don't see as much uh, in, in, you know, whether it's India, Pakistan, underneath these places where, uh, you know, you live in these multi-generational households, right? Where like you have your, your kind of oldest generation taking care of, of little kids, like all, all those things, right? That like everyone kind of works together and, and continue to stay engaged and, and, and involved in, in the community around them. Um, as to how we fix that, right? You know, I, I think, uh, that's a, it's a difficult question. I am personally angel invested into a, a couple of, um, a couple of startups doing interesting work in, in the U S around multi-generational kind of housing and, and, and building that in a way that's not, you know, it's, it's obviously going to be very difficult to solve if, if you do it family specific, right? Like how do we start to replicate multi-generational living in, in kind of a community aspect, right? And, and so there's some really interesting companies doing work like that. And I think maybe that's, that's a way we start to approach solving this problem. Um, but you know it's it's tough. It's particularly tough, just also in the, in in the way um, you know uh, in the way the U.S. is laid out, right? Like it's, it's super easy in, in a lot of places in in Europe or, or Asia to you know walk outside your door and see other people and kind of engage in community. Not as easy when you know you're living a, a 15 minute car ride from the nearest park, right, or those type of things, and and so you you start to lose uh, a lot of that kind of random interaction people used to have, um, and and it's hard to say. You know, I, I don't think. The research is super clear on, on how quant you know how, how do we quantify the effects of that on on prevalence of Alzheimer's and other conditions like that, but but intuitively you know it feels like it's there uh, and and in any case it would at least be helpful to, to solve from the perspective of, of kind of symptom management and, and symptom aid. Look, I've given you a really hard time, so I apologize, but I <laughs> wanted to ask a super broad question, which was when you speak to investors, clinicians, potential customers, can you give me a flavor of the kind of negative things they say about what you're building and the positive things as well like if you had to give me like a high level summary what what are those things yeah well i mean you know you hit one of them on on the head which we uh we get a lot which is that, like what do you do right like hey we catch this early it's like what do you do with that information um 
Super good question. <laughs> uh, you know, our, our usual take is, is the same as, as what I told you, which is all right. There are a lot of these small things you could do. Um, but regardless of like how much you can cure or, or you know, treat this condition, um, it's a condition that is that takes a lot of work to get through and like takes a lot of resources and, and is expensive. Um, and so if there's just optimization you can do from a care perspective, right, then like there's there's a massive opportunity here. And, and, and people usually like that a lot, right, which is that like for us, diagnostics for me altruistically right diagnostics are really helpful for like this idea of, of well you know we can we can try to help people earlier and, and you can accelerate research clinical research processes all those things right so so that that's great uh, but also there's just the idea where like diagnostics are, are simply like a, a lead gen function for for care right so like if, if we're talking about who's going to win we spend close to 300 billion dollars a year in the united states on, on alzheimer's care right so it's like the question is like well, well who's going to win that space that today is super fragmented and has no kind of direct consumer um provider uh well then you know catching this condition early for people and, and being that you know first leg in is, is a great way to do that right where if I, it doesn't matter if i tell if, you know if, if we catch the condition for you and, and and we're like hey there's nothing you can really do for the next like few years and and you know hopefully we can try to help with x y and z but we don't really know if any of that's going to be really effective um that's unfortunate that we have that gap there but at least right when symptoms start to present when you do need all this help and you need you know you need to insource nursing care and you need um you need all these different consultations set up and you want those visual therapeutics and all that right the person you're going to turn to is uh is that first kind of player that, that you know you've had a relationship with for, for multiple years and and so that's what you know I, I think people have really liked and so it's funny i think it's like both it's kind of the same thing that people you know hate and, and love, which is, you know, they hate this idea of like, well, you can't really do anything immediately. And it's not, you know, there's no clear cut science on, on what to do here. Um, but then they love the fact that like, you can use this, this diagnostic leverage, just a, a way to win that care landscape. And, and I think in a lot of ways, right, it's, it's something that sucks from like a, a, a real life perspective, but it's super interesting from a business perspective, it's just like, we said earlier, we don't know a lot about Alzheimer's disease at all. And, and we're going to learn a lot more. And we're going to learn a lot more about what treatments look like. Um, and it's going to be a fantastic position to be in, right? Whether it's three, five, 10, 15 years from now um, to have been, you know, an established DTC provider of care uh, that can then kind of, you know, wedge in any of these other solutions as well. So my understanding of Y Combinator is that it's kind of like the Harvard for startups. And I wanted to ask, <laughs> um, A, how did you get in? Or do you think there's anything specific that you did that worked well for you? And secondly, could you give me a flavor of kind of any high level takeaways you had from it or anything kind of that you learned from the whole process? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, YC is, it's a, it's a fantastic program. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I love the, uh, the, the Harvard of uh, startups name. I went to Yale. So, uh, we have a little, we have a little thing with uh, the big H, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a great program. I think, you know, some of the things that, that people really like, uh, about us was, was just this, you know, this ability to early on demonstrate, you know, this wedge of like, we, we have this interesting idea and, you know, this idea of like, you should be able to build digitized diagnostics for Alzheimer's and dementias and all of that. And we had, uh, you know, coming into to applying to, to YC in that September or whatever it was, you know, we've been able to demonstrate some, some work on, on the fact that, this, that people actually want this, right. And, you know, there are people that are willing to sign up and, and get on a wait list and those types of things. And so, you know, I think what YC really liked was, was a couple of things. One, I think was, was the idea of like, uh, this is just a massive problem in a massive space. And like, honestly, for a program like, like YC or, or, you know, similar, like for me, as, as I think about, you know, angel messing into really early companies, like it doesn't really matter, um, 
what exactly you're doing right now. Like it doesn't matter um, what exact problem you're trying to solve within Alzheimer's because if, if you know you look at it, it's a massive enough market and there are a ton of problems it needs solving. So like if you have some experience in the space, then you'll be able to solve one of those effectively, right? And, and so I think YC like that and, and like you know my kind of personal connection to the space. Although I guess you know to caveat that. Um, We'll never really know <laughs> what they uh, what they liked or what they didn't like. To so your second question about you know what what the takeaways were, look, I think the biggest part of, of YC, uh, I think there are two things. One is just the people that you get to go through this program with, right? And so you get to go through with like a, a fantastic cohort of companies um, that are all you know solving super interesting problems, all in slightly different ways, right? And and you get this uh, this kind of bundling of knowledge that you know doesn't happen in a lot of other places like for us right it's like when you want to solve really complex tech problems right um and and for us you know the the technical lift is, is super light compared to like what when you talk to some of these back-end like quantum computing companies are going through yc like those type of things right so like when you have questions on something like that you can call one of those people up and and you know they solved that ages ago and instead of spending you know weeks trying to find a solution you know you get it in 10 minutes and and similarly on the medical side right like there are people they're there are a lot of founder physicians going through YC who, you know, had a lot of experience with what does the insurance landscape look like in the U.S.? You know, how do you how do you how do you think about approaching insurers and, and all those things? I knew nothing about. Um, relatively difficult thing to really learn about online because you know resources and documentation are scattered. But you call one of these people up and, and you get a lot of context and information very quickly. So um, so that I would say is is the you know the, the biggest boon of, of the program um, and and you know one of the biggest takeaways that they that they teach you, right, is I think really just like, go, go really, really quickly. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, at the beginning, it's funny, cause at the beginning of YC, I was like, you know, they, they say that in the, in the first talk, and I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever, like, we, we kind of all know that, you know, intuitively, I think it makes sense, like, we should go fast, if you can go fast. Um, but YC does this really good job of, like, forcing you to do it. Uh, and, and building the structure in the program that like makes you set goals and makes you try to achieve those goals. Most importantly, one of the things that, that I thought was fantastic is they, Tell you to set goals that you're only fifty percent sure you're going to hit, um, which I had never done before. You know, I, I think there was this there's this intrinsic kind of um, shyness from from setting goals that are too lofty because no one wants to fail, right? Particularly by by their own standard. Um, and so what YC does is, is they they force you to to set these two week goals, try to meet them. Honestly, I don't think I met any of our two week goals every two weeks. Um, but by the end of the program, right, you're, you're way further than you than you thought you would have been just by trying to really hit these, these heavy targets. Um, and, and so I think that's a big thing that they do really, really well. Um, and, uh, you know, and when you do it surrounded by everyone else who's doing it as well, you know, everyone kind of leans in, everyone goes all in um, and, and you get to feel this really exciting vibe that, that you don't get too many other places. I want to make two observations. One is that you talk at like 3x speed and... <laughs> The second is that uh, you give off like a vibe or an energy that you're like an IQ 400 person. So that leads <laughs> to the next question, which is, have there been any habits or ways you approach problems or just anything you think that's unique about you that's helped you get to where you are today? Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny, actually, something uh, related to what you said about you know, me speaking really quickly. So coming to get all the time um, from a lot of people and what you'll find out, it's interesting in pitching investors, right? I got a lot of feedback early on from investors were like, you know, oh, like you talk too fast, like those types of things. And, and, you know, I try to fix it. Sometimes what I found, right, what was super interesting is like, if you look, we ended up raising $6 million as our seed round. If you look at almost every one of those investors, one of the things that they said that, you know, they just loved uh, was, was essentially that, right? Like, you know, if, if you, if you are excited about the problem you're solving, you, you naturally, you know, 
speak a little quicker and that, that excitement comes through. Um, and, and, and that was a part of what everyone liked. So, so I kind of, you know, uh, I used to try to slow myself down and, and all of those things. Um, but what I found is like investors that don't care uh, or people that don't care, uh, are going to zone out whether you're talking really quickly or not. <laughs> and, uh, and people that do care, uh, will, will try really hard to, to be a part of it. Um, and, and, you know, well, we'll you can, transfer a lot of that excitement to other folks. Um, but that being said, one thing that, that has been super useful um, for me is I like to write essentially as, as many things as I can. Like I would much rather uh, for anything important, and this is something I hated doing through uh, through school and through college, um, but now uh, it's something I try to do all the time. So like instead of putting together a PowerPoint for a presentation to the team or to speak with somebody, or and, and I have the team do, the, do this as well, it, it's that we, we write things. We write like a two to three page thesis on, on, on some perspective, right? Whether it's like, uh, you know, it's like, what should we do? What should we be building? Like what should come next? Right. Or like, who should we hire? Um, like what type of person should this be even on the specific people? Right. Like, like, you know, we have this really, sometimes we have cases where we're interviewing now and like, you know, all of perspective on somebody, um, and, and, you know, our CTO have a different perspective on somebody and, and, you know, we'll both write, a two to three page paper on, like, on, on what we, what we think. And, and, you know, we'll read through those together. And there's something really valuable, I think, in, in laying out an argument, uh, in the way that you have to when you write it down. Uh, it isn't as, it, it isn't, you know, required in the same way and in, in like a PowerPoint or those type of things. And I think there's, um, something cool about like when you write, um, the only thing that can possibly shine, right? Like is your argument. And, and that sometimes gets obfuscated when it's, in a PowerPoint or when you're speaking or those type of things. So, so that, that would, I would say is, is one of the, the new habits, at least through, uh, through all this startup stuff that, that's been super helpful. It's interesting you mentioned about talking fast and how traditional advice says not to and investors were saying that because I've long had a feeling that a lot of traditional public speaking advice is kind of bullshit. It's like, you know, start <laughs> speak, speak really slowly, like a TED speaker, outline your points at the start, have a conclusion at the end. And any good speaker that I witness when I see someone who's really good at speaking, I don't think they follow any of that. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess it, to me, it's like, you know, if I look back on, on any of the interesting speakers I've, I've ever heard, right? Like, I don't know that I could tell you very many salient points from like what they said but like i could tell you like like how i felt afterwards or, or kind of the vibe i was left with um and i think that's a huge part of public speaking probably the most important part of public speaking um which is how you how you feel right and one of the ways that comes through is is, is that you know whether it's the speed or the excitement or, or whatever it is um and it's definitely slept on uh like you said like i have a lot of uh that's one of the, the whenever you know founders that come and, and ask for advice on fundraising or whatever it is now uh that's one of the things i said you know honestly people talk fast i tell them to keep doing it um and if people talk slow you know i tell them to just kind of kick it up a notch and, and you know get some more of that excitement in there so these this next question is kind of two questions rolled into one but they're loosely linked and it was basically that the opposite of the question i just asked so are there any things about you any habits or any ways you act that are like bad but you're surprisingly you've got through life with them and loosely related is along your journey in building craniometrics, has there been any advice that you've received that you've just thought is, is not very good? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a good question. So, I, I mean, I think one of the things uh, that has permeated my life in general is like, you know, I definitely was was always growing up to kid who's like, you know, doing homework on the bus on the way to school um, and like, you know, trying to write in some final answers while the teacher was picking it up and, and all of those things. And like, so it was just, you know, that because I was always like behind on things and, and always kind of slow and um, always somehow, you know, it ended up 
you know, working out. I think hindsight, everything works out, right? So, but like I always kind of, you know, got things done and, and, I, and I always um, did best when I you know, felt like there was kind of a, a fire under me. Uh, and, and so that was a really bad habit uh, growing up for sure. Um, but it's interesting in a startup space where like, it actually works pretty well. We're like, there's kind of always fire on you, right? And like, there's, there's always like something, but there's always like a customer asking for something else. Right. And like, there's always, you know, there are, there are all these different things that, that, that are constantly burning. Um, and so it lends itself well to that when there's, you know, there's, there's always, always things to do and, and always things to, to get done. Awesome. And the other question was, was there any advice you got along the way? Like maybe, maybe that was your advice, but was there any, uh, stuff that people have recommended that you thought is is not very good along your journey. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll say like people have so like in, in medicine, I think people have established views on like which, how they think the system should work. We get a lot of people that will tell us. Uh, we get investors do will say like, oh, like you know, this would be really interesting for us to entertain once you've you know built insurance partnerships or, or gone down you know that line and and, and all that. And, and and we really don't want to do that at all. You know, I don't think we want to, you know, people will say that people also say like, well, you know, you should, uh, you know, you can kind of go around with how do you integrate this with, with physician practice, right. Or become that tool that sits inside of offices. Um, you know, I, I think people give a lot of advice um, that makes sense from the lens of like, well, how, how, how is medical tooling done, you know, like 10 years ago or like, like how, you know, how, how are these things, how are these things built or how, how did people achieve scale with tools? And now we're in a really interesting space um, in, in medicine in general, you know, definitely accelerated by COVID where you have this opportunity to build really interesting, like pure consumer plays, uh, you know, around the space and, and build tools that like solely go straight to people at home. And, and, you know, at least to start for us now, we're like cash pay. Um, and, and I think that works really well because like one, no one else is doing it. There are a lot of other people that are, are doing, you know, how do we build, for, you know, pure like value-based care infrastructure, those type of things. Um, and that's interesting. We obviously want to do that eventually. Um, but like what we think makes way more sense is like, well, if you build a really interesting consumer opportunity first, uh, you can build it to a scale where like, you know, you can collect all the data while doing it. Did it make the, the insurance companies will sign on to like a, you know, a value-based payment plan, those type of things. Um, whereas what most other folks are doing is, you know, they, they're raising money and then spending that money on, on a lot of trials and research and data collection, which is fine. But, you know, we just think, you know, an approach that's slower and, and more expensive and, and there's no reason to to really take. So we get a lot of people that like want us to go kind of a, a more traditional route here. Um, and then we find some people that like really love the, the you know, differentiated perspective we're taking, you know, like all of the investors we brought on board, et cetera. Um, so that I would say is, is you know, the, the piece of advice that we ha- haven't taken or that I thought was, you know, pretty bad. Uh, it, it makes sense um, for some people and it makes sense for some skill sets. Like one thing that I think is important for founders to think about in general, right, is like there's a, there's a difference between what like the best way objectively to do something is and the way you will be best at doing something. Right? And, and I think people like conflate those things too often. You could say, say, say objectively, right, like a great way to build a medical tool is to, you know, just do the research, chase this insurer route, get approved, you know, and go through all of that. Maybe say, say that's what it is. And, and I have caveats on that. Like say that's the gold standard right? It doesn't actually matter what the gold standard is if like, that's not what you're going to be good at building, right? Like the question for me was like, am I going to be good? Am I going to be better than all the other people that are building here at like navigating insurer landscapes or like doing, you know, large scale academic research, any of those things? Like I'm not, like I'm not going to be better than people who've done that for like 20, 30 years and are building products in that space. What I, what I could be better at, right? Is like, can we build a better consumer experience? Can we build something people actually want to use? 
Um, and, and so, so that was kind of, you know, a big inflection point for us. We were just like, you know, a lot of people give you this advice, like what they think is, is, is objectively the best. And you have to caveat a lot of that, which is like, you know, what are you actually going to be best at? I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, some of these episodes are now available in video format on Spotify and on YouTube. Thanks for listening.